Well, hello and welcome for episode 13 of Data Unplugged. Today I have Lara with me, an NLP specialist. Lara, thank you very, very much for, for joining me on this episode today. Hi, Vincenzo. Good to see you in this uh, interesting virtual room. <laughs> well, you know, I thought I thought uh, flying to, to Berlin uh, to record this might be a little bit overkill. Uh, so that's why I thought let's do it this way for you as well. Uh, that's, that's a usual medium. But Lara, um, thank you for coming on. And uh, what I usually like to do is for the people that join on the podcast, just to quickly introduce themselves and just sharing a little bit who they are and, and, and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Lara Ehrenhofer. I started out in life as a medievalist. So pro tip, if you want to find out how to be really unemployable circa 2011, when the economy is so <laughs> awful, um, focus on uh, early English and French uh, literature. It's a really good way to go. Um, no, but like joking aside, um, I started out with the literature studies because I was interested in literature. But then the more I got into this medieval literature and understanding like it's a completely different mindset that people had at that time. It was, and that's very interesting to explore from a literary perspective. But the deeper I got into that, the more I realized that the language is also completely different. And so mm. that led me to specialize in linguistics. And the, the main thought there was also, gosh, I mean, when language changes over time, the interesting thing is we see the same types of changes coming up over and over again throughout history, different languages, different communities, different points in time. But the fact that there's some very typical types of language change suggests that some of this is about perception biases in the brain. So that's how I got interested in the neuroscience of language. I did my master's uh, also at Oxford, and then I got a Fulbright to do a PhD in the neuroscience of language um, at the University of Maryland. And after I graduated, I moved back to Berlin and um, yeah, worked in a political communications agency and now have shifted into the NLP space. And there I have to say, um, all of the stuff from the neuroscience of language is completely, um, it, it's highly relevant because so much of the last, you know, 50, 60 years of investigation and research, both in computer science um, and in linguistics and in any kind of neuroscience cognition type of study, there's been a lot of like cross-pollination, let's say. So all of these neural networks that you're hearing about from the computational side of things are inspired by a desire to model or simulate how the human brain learns. And at the same time, you see a lot of um, cognitive science and neuroscience uh, coming up with ideas based on, well, if from a computational perspective, this is the most efficient way to do things, could it be that actually the human brain also uses a method that's similar? So there's a lot of interaction between these fields and it's a super fascinating space to be in. Amazing. I'll be 100% honest with you. I expected a lot of things. I didn't expect that, uh, <laughs> right? That transition. Um, <laughs> I did expect almost everything, but not that. Um, that is Absolutely interesting. That, that is, can you actually, uh, before we jump in into like you, your current expertise, NLP, right? Can we actually, can you actually um, tell me a bit more about this, this patterns that you were just talking about 
um, in a little bit more detail. Yeah. Okay. Let me find a good example. So, and this is, okay. I, I'm going to find you an example that blends together this medieval English literature. With, yeah. Um, the human brain side of things. Okay. So one thing that you tend to find um, in languages that have a lot of different endings. Um, so, okay. So you have languages like say German, you speak German or you've tried to learn German. Um, so you know that there's like, there's der, die, das, then there's cases, there's different endings. Some of them overlap depending on the, the position of a word within the sentence, the ending mm -hmm. could be different depending on the grammatical gender of the word, depending on the number of things that you're describing, it's, it's going to be different. And you get two types of trends. One is that they all sort of, over time, collapse into one and disappear. And the other type of trend um, is that they are maintained and they stay very, very distinct over time. And English and German actually are great examples of both of these. The interesting thing is, like, you know, 1500 years ago, they were already becoming distinct languages, for sure, but they were a lot more similar in terms of their structure. And then we all won't know what happened. In English, you do not have to worry about grammatical gender. You basically do not have to worry about case. It only shows up in very, very specific things. So, for example, we say, I gave the gift to him, not I gave the gift to he. Right? Yeah. So that's one small case ending. But other than that, you're going to find very few places where you get all of these differences. And the whole thing with the grammatical gender, um, I went to the table is not different from I went to the sea or I went to the book or something like this. It's always the same the, unlike in German. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's like, that's how case works. Um, 1500 years ago, English had a lot more of these different endings. And one of the things that happened was that, so first of all, there was a huge migration of peoples from um, what is now sort of, the, let's say the geographic re region that is currently covered by modern Germany and some of the Netherlands and some of Denmark to England. Now, first of all, there were already people living there uh, who were like pushed to the sides. So that's the forebears of modern day, like Welsh and Scottish and Irish people. And their language got very much pushed to the sidelines, which is why it's, those are all endangered languages now. The other thing was that, well, another couple of hundred years later, someone else came along and it was the Vikings. Um, with plunder, pillage, rape, murder, and everything else that you can imagine. And one of the things that happened was, well, first of all, they spoke a language that was also at the time, like, very closely related. It was already distinct, but um, it, it was clearly different, but it's supposed that people were able to understand each other more or less when talking. And one of the things that happened was these Vikings they really came in enormous numbers. And especially in the north of England, you get this kind of interleaving of settlements between the sort of Germanic uh, peoples that had migrated maybe three-ish th centuries earlier, four-ish centuries earlier, 
and then these Viking migrations, and you get this mixture. Now, in the language that now we call English, um, already these distinctions between case endings were starting to become blurred. And that trend was very much accelerated when the high degree of language contact with the Vikings was occurring. And one kind of co-effect of this, or like, let's say, co-occurrence of this, is that when you have case endings um, that are very distinct, you can have a lot of flexibility in your word order because it's always clear from the case ending who is doing what to who in the sentence. When you don't have that case ending information, you really need to be extremely strict about word order so that the place in the sentence tells you who is doing what to who. And so what ended up happening was with this erosion of the case endings, you get a much, much stricter word order in English. Modern day German continued on its existing path of having very flexible word order. Mm -hmm. English from a thousand years ago became much more fixed in its word order. And the thing is, this is where the link with the human brain stuff is happening. You get some of these, um, these shifts, you can see them basically in the way that children learn language. So it's very much about what input does a kid have? So what are the sentences that I hear when I'm a tiny, tiny child or like just born all the way up to, you know, when my, my, my linguistic ability is, is fully formed? Um, and the thing is, if you have case information that is important to tell you who is doing what to who in a sentence, then that's something you're going to pay attention to. Um, but if the case information is getting eroded, um, it's not very, like, it doesn't sound very distinct anymore. And mostly you get the information anyway from the order of the words, then you're going to over generations have this shift away from the case being the important part of having the who does what to who information and towards the word order. And this is something that was happening already, like in the beginnings, um, with this shift from the continent to England, but with the high degree of uh, like language communities mixing with Vikings, it's thought that this also contributed to that shift. And you see that kind of influence of language acquisition on syntactic um, language change um, in lots of different languages over time as well. That was uh, super interesting. Honestly, I rarely get some uh, history excourses in this podcast. That's the first time and I loved it. <laughs> uh, I never really thought about it that way. And it's also crazy that, that you transitioned from uh, from this, how it started, like you, you studying that and then going over to uh, to being an NLP specialist. And actually that, that takes us also to the, the, the core of, of this um episodes podcast nlp that that's where you are right now that's where you uh where your expertise lies now right so tell me first maybe what is nlp okay so oh my goodness i wish you told me so like ahead of time so that i could like get the wikipedia uh short version <laughs> But let me tell you, um, basically, NLP, natural language processing, is about 
using computational methods to process text. And that can be um, like to process language information. You know what? I Text is not even accurate. <laughs> and by process, I mean, you can use it simply to, you can use methods to um, clean up texts. Um, you can use methods to analyze texts. For example, find out what are the most common words that a particular writer uses? Um, what are the most common um, topics, uh, such, so groups of words that are most common in different categories of text? So, for example, sports news versus politics news versus, um, I don't know, cultural news. Um, you can also use NLP methods to do things like map um, audio signals to words. So that's essentially what um, automatic speech recognition is about. You can use NLP to do things like finding the statistical patterns of words and predicting um, from an input the topic category or um, some kind of a label if you want to build a classifier or you can build a model that predicts upcoming words, so generates more words. Um, yeah, you can, it's extremely, like, it's an extremely varied field, and um, you have to have a really wide range of tools um, in your toolkit to be able to, to, to play around with this. So you mentioned a couple of things that, what NLP is, is for, right? But, um, Can you give us uh, some example, like some, some clear example about what can we do with NLP? Like something that maybe is something that can be tied to, to someone like me, a normal person in a normal world, how I could utilize something that is powered by NLP. Okay. So I'm just going to spitball some ideas for you. Um, one thing you might be interested in. Okay. Vincenzo, you look like someone that. Um, is really interested in lots of delicious food. So you might say, um, I get recommendations from all of my friends for restaurants all over the world. And you might have like, you know, the 9,000 people that listen to this podcast each recommend their favorite restaurant in, um, in, in their city. And you mm -hmm. can them uh, describe the food. So, Using NLP methods, you could do things like, say, so you have the name of the restaurant, you have a description of the food, and you have maybe a star rating, right? Um, so you ask your 9,000 people for, say, five restaurants each, um, one with five stars, four stars, three stars, two stars, one star. And then out of this, let's say overnight, because of the amazingness of this podcast, you get 9,000 new listeners. And they also give you restaurant recommendations, but all they do is give you a description. They don't give you the star rating. What you could do is you could take the initial, um, the initial data set that you got from your existing listeners. You could clean your data, find the topics in it, um, do some like prediction of the label. So depending on what topics or what words are present in the description, how many stars is it going to get? And you could map that same thing onto the new set and assign stars based on the prediction. So existing listener, I don't know, 
Clara Ehrenhofer, um, writes, Five Stars, my favorite restaurant in my street here, is um, a top-notch family-style Sichuan restaurant. They serve extremely spicy food. All of it is really flavorful. And my number one top recommendation for you is the hot chili dumplings. Look it up, Tianfu. Um, when you're in Berlin, let me know. We're going to go there. <laughs> and then your new listener, I don't know, that's, uh, let's say, Laura Schmerendorfer. Um, she says, um, my top restaurant um, has really hot Sichuan peppers and um, serves it in an innovative pizzeria-style setting. Since my words, um, Sichuan and hot and dumplings and flavorful, were associated with a five-star rating, we're mm -hmm. going to predict for the fake new listeners' review that that's also going to get a very high rating. It's obviously more complex because, you know, it's not just me, it's 9,000 other people. Well, 8,999. But this is the kind of thing that you would be able to do. Right, right. Okay, that's, that's quite cool. And I'm taking you up on your offer. So if I'm in Berlin, you, you <laughs> okay. can't pull out because now we've got it recorded. So if you don't take me there, then uh, I can pull you up on it. Uh, just to make that clear. But um, another thing, and, and that's something that I'm super interested about because of, of the potential potential use cases maybe in the future is voice assistance, right? Some stuff like Alexa, all that stuff. They are powered by NLPs, am I right? Yes, exactly. Can you deep dive a little bit more how like an NLP works maybe in, in a voice assistant Absolutely. environment or for a voice assistant? Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, with the caveat that, you know, there's lots of different ways to do this. So the basic, uh, the basic setup that you're going to need to set up is first you need something that transcribes what someone is saying into text. Mm -hmm. Second thing you need is something that extracts what you're trying to do with the thing that you're saying. Um, so for example, if you say, um, I want to order a pizza, or um, you know, someone else might say, I'm really hungry, I want a pizza now. Or someone else might say, what's that delivery service for pizza? Can you call and get me one? All of these things, like all of this cloud of stuff, first of all, needs to be transcribed into text. And then second of all, you need something that basically finds the patterns in this and differentiates, for example, the functionality of ordering a pizza from the functionality of calling your grandma or any other kind of functionality that you might have defined in your, in your voice assistant. Um, calling your grandma, um, ordering new laundry detergent or any other product, this kind of thing. And then the, the, the last step is obviously there has to be some kind of an uh, some kind of a dialogue handling. So um, if the voice assistant has detected the call a pizza functionality is being requested, then it needs to do the things that are required in order to get to the next step of you eating the pizza, which is it needs to find out what type of pizza do you want, which restaurant from, uh, what what address to deliver it to, all this kind of stuff. So there needs to be kind of a, a question answering sort of setup. 
And the NLP part, so the ASR part is the one thing um, that I won't go into too much detail now, but um, the classification mechanism in the middle, that's one that's, um, first of all, I mean, it's very interesting. And second of all, it's also very tricky because even the, the simpler types of setups, what you need to have is a large, so first of all, you need to start out by defining what kinds of functionalities do you even want to make available to the user of your voice assistant? So I'm going to imagine this is the the new VIN 3000 home assistant just for you and um, tell me some functionality. So we've already got order pizza, call your grandma, order products for your home. What else do you want? Let's give me, give me two more. Book holidays. Book a holiday. Okay. And find me a recipe maybe. Cool. Let's go with that. I like to cook. Okay. Five, five functionalities we have here. So the next thing I would need to do is go and find what are all the possible variations of things that someone might say, whether it's you specifically or your other user group, in order to, to actually access mm -hmm. these things. And then the important thing is, of course, when I have my list of, I don't know, let's say for the sake of simplicity, 100 sentences per, per category, then, of course, I want to make sure that people can access the functionality, even if they don't say that exact same thing, right? So what the NLP system in this case does, so NLU uh, is natural language understanding, which usually is uh, the term used for these kinds of classification tasks. It's going to, when it hears a new sentence, it's going to uh, do some statistical analysis to understand. Oh, Okay. Out of the five topics that I have here, um, or, or the, the five categories, out of the words that the person actually said, which one is the best match? And it gets there because of looking at what words tend to co-occur together um, and in what order. Like that's roughly the, the, the generalization behind it. And then it slaps on a label and it says, hmm, if someone says something about being very hungry, that's likely to be the order of pizza intent. Also, the word pizza is likely to be related to the order of pizza intent. But um, please order me. I, I, I have some very dirty clothes, um, and I want them to come out out of the washing machine smelling like pizza. So which one is that going to be? Probably the right. one, right? So there's like a very special product invented by... I don't know, Pizza Hut, which is Pizza Hut flavored laundry detergent. And that's the one I'm going to have to order for you. So this is where it starts to get a little bit more complex, because obviously just saying the word pizza does not mean that what you're trying to do is order a pizza. And that's why you need this statistical analysis of like, OK, given these words, what's the most likely category to match them onto? The other thing that's super complex is how do you differentiate between Someone saying something that just absolutely isn't within the hypothesis space of the functionalities that you have. Um, so imagine that same VIN 3000 special home voice assistant with five different functionalities. And then you're trying to access, I don't know, play me music by Beyonce. And that's just not trained in our system. We don't have that. So that's it's called out of domain. Or someone says something that's like very much at the boundary between two functionalities and um, 
hard to classify. So I don't get a good result for that. That's in-domain, but low confidence. Differentiating between those two different things, that's a, that's a really tough challenge for, for voice assistants to handle. Okay. I actually have a, a question um, because you, you said that um, obviously there's different ways of saying something like order me a pizza. Now, when you, when you get a voice assistant ready, like, let's say we want to build this VIN 3000 uh, home voice assistant, whatever. Let, let's say we want to get a product uh, market ready, right? The, uh, the product, want to get it for the market. Is it now, is it a case of, is it a case of training the models to a degree where they understand, like keep feeding them with information? Or is this a case of firstly feeding them with, thousand sentences that could be possible and then training and on the back of that because that's what i'm struggling to understand do we feed him first the, the system the model or whatever or do we just just keep training him right like how do we get a product that's ready to do whatever this vin 3000 needs to be doing yeah so i have really good news to you for you which is you can do both there's good arguments to okay. do both of these things. So imagine a situation where I, okay, the VIN 3000 language, um, language assistant, voice assistant, um, is for a device that already has thousands of users within Germany. And I want to release a new functionality for this. Let's say the play music functionality. Then what I might do is I might say, okay, um, I have here my team of specialists, NLP specialist ling linguists at my company, and I'm going to have them just off the top of their heads from their experience and linguistic background knowledge, um, generate like 25, 30 sentences that are plausible variants of what people will actually say to trigger the uh, play me music functionality. And then I release this. It's true that for the first couple of weeks that this feature is out there, it's only going to be functioning or like accessible if you say things that are quite close to that initial 30, 25 to 30 sentence um, sample. But every time someone does trigger the functionality, the sample grows and the variability grows. So that's one way that you might be able to do it. The other option that you have is you say, hmm, actually, the VIN 3000, it's not something that's already in a widely um, used consumer device. It is, in fact, um, not only, only a handful of people already have this. And for those people, they have like really, really high standards in terms of what they can say in order to access certain functionalities. If that's the case, then what you probably want to do is gather a lot of data from unrelated people and just ask them, if you were trying to get this functionality, how might you ask for it? You gather a ton of data, you train your model, and then you release it into the real product. In both cases, I would recommend the whole um, aggregating user information from production and just staggering the learning so that it gets, basically the, the system kind of balances out to what people actually say. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, there's arguments for doing it both ways. Okay, that's that's quite interesting. Um, if it's not too difficult, then I might message you to um, get get this product on the market. Uh, we can develop it together. Cool. Uh, who knows? Maybe that's the next billion dollar idea. You never know, right? Um, probably not. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> right. Do you know what? Another thing that I was thinking about this whole voice assistance, because I have to say that um, I like doing two, three things at the same time. So me and Ziri are like best buds, right? But the problem is that Ziri sometimes just doesn't respond to me. And I'm not sure if that's the case, but someone said to me that Ziri has been trained with American voices. And so sometimes it's it's the way I say things that it doesn't pick me up. So I can imagine that a challenge with especially voice assistants might be slang or like, you know, different people, cultures, regions, you know, like, do you then train them? Like, do you have like training sets for specific, specific regions? And, you know, like they say it in, in this way or that way, or, or how does that work? Yeah. I don't know. Like the slang thing is, is like, I don't know why Siri doesn't want to talk to me sometimes. <laughs> Well, um, so in general, I think that's actually why um, a lot of these really big tech companies do end up diversifying their product um, for okay. specific regions of, of, for example, a language that has mm. a lot of variability like English um, and also a huge market. Um, they're going to specialize. I don't think that they do, you know, like Texas English versus um New Zealand English at this point. Actually, they might have a separate New Zealand version. I'm, I'm really not sure. But the granularity is something that you can you can pick. Now, um, it's also the case that um, in the very, very early days of Siri, um, the British so-called um, Siri model, um, it was like all over the news that um, it did not understand, understand Scottish people. And so... <laughs> They hadn't actually included samples from Scottish speakers um, in their training data. In general, the thing that you find when you have these big data approaches is that it ends up all sort of averaging out, right? So, and it also means that when you have a non-native user, such as yourself, that that is a demographic that is likely to have not been very highly represented in the training data set. So that's that's something very particular to watch out for when you're developing a, a voice uh, product. Like, who are your who's your demographic? Is it natives? Um, if so, which region is that something I can optimize for? Um, or do I open myself up to the risk of, like, say, I don't know, if I do pro if I do create a product that is specific to Texas English, and then it turns out I have a new buyer or like someone in scotland wants to adapt this product for their local users then i have to start from zero right so that's well like maybe not zero but i then have to specialize for them differently and the other question i have to ask is well if my users are lots of non-natives how do i include that variability um in 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 the language models as well because of course different clusters of non-native speakers are going to have different linguistic um, quirks. And for example, if I have, I don't know, the Texas English product and I have a bunch of non-natives that are all from the same place, say Italy, then I might be able to say, oh, I just get a couple of those people and include them in my, in my training data and then it's all fine. But then of course, again, I have the problem of if I have a non-native who's from um Cameroon that might be again difficult to understand so basically mm -hmm. what I'm saying is it's not you then it's them they haven't taken okay. it into account 
I was literally about to say, well, then it's quite obvious that my zero seems discriminating against me because I'm non-native. Like I'll remember that for my next conversation with zero when I'm alone on my couch. Um, okay, cool. Okay. That explains it. Like I was wondering about that because again, like I've had this situation and I've had this conversation with someone else and he was saying it depends on the training data that, that yeah. he received. Um, cool. Now, another point, um, because I'm not entirely sure, like I could ask a stupid question here, but um, a chatbot and a voice assistant, they are not necessarily the same thing. Am I right? Yeah. So I think <clears throat> they have a certain commonality, right? So the idea is to simulate an interaction between two human speakers, except right. in the case of the voice assistant slash the chatbot, only one of these is a human. Um, chatbots... And voice assistants have the same uh, challenge, which is they need to sound natural, but also they need to uh, guide you towards very specific conversational goals. So the chatbot that is, for example, in your online banking, hello, I'm, I don't know, Frankie, your digital assistant. And you type in, hi, I want to make a wire transfer to Australia. How do I do that? They go, ah, sorry, I did not get that. You know, like... This whole experience of this is a query that the chatbot couldn't parse or the voice assistant couldn't parse, that's a very common experience. And part of the reason is because obviously the kinds of functionalities that you as a user might want to access from your bank or from anything else um, might not be the kinds of functionalities that they currently have available to be interacted with through language. The other thing is that I think a lot of um, the sort of, uh, let's say, like non-technical uh, use of the word chatbot is any system that continues a conversation with someone. And so when you think about what ChatGPT does, you enter a question or like a sentence, and on that basis, it just generates more text. And when you think about it, that's actually in important ways, quite similar to what we as humans are doing, right? Here I am saying something. And then on the basis of what I've said, you generate more text. And then on the basis of what you say, I generate more text, right? Like if you really break it down, we are doing this. The mm -hmm. difference with chat GPT is of course, all ChatGPT can do is generate more text on the basis of really, really sophisticated and complex statistical probabilities. And um, you and I, let's be clear, are humans, uncontroversially so. Um, but the thing that's been so mind-blowing about ChatGPT is that the types of statistical patterns of language that it is able to generate look a lot like it is generated from like cognition. And so I think that's, that's where some of the sort of questions about, well, what is a chatbot? What is a voice assistant? What are they trying to do? And what is having a conversation with with a human and what is having a conversation with a machine like where are the divisions between those and the interesting thing with this chat gpt phenomenon of the last you know six months is that as it turns out statistical probabilities alone 
can simulate quite a lot of what we thought was unique to humans, which is quite humbling. Yeah, okay. you're, you're looking worried. <laughs> yeah, a, a little bit. Uh, no, I'm, I'm joking. Uh, okay, cool. But from an NLP perspective, looking at it from an NLP perspective, what's the difference building a voice assistant or a chatbot? Are there any differences? Or are they just powered by the same thing, just in a slightly different way? So the one thing is that if you have a voice assistant, for sure you need, um, your input is speech. Whereas with a chatbot, your input is already typed text. So yeah. you have that one extra step, that for sure. The other thing um, that you're going to have, if, if you're conceptualizing a chatbot as just this generating plausible interactions, whereas uh, then, then it is quite different from a voice assistant whose aim is essentially to provide a conversational interface to a backend of some kind. So going back to the, the pizza example, ordering a pizza, um, if you have a voice assistant that's about um, getting a pizza, then there's certain pieces of information that the voice assistant will need to um, collect from you in order to be able to actually do the thing. And if you have a system that's just designed to generate plausible text, then you might imagine a situation where um, the chatbot uh, responds with like, I don't know, uh, that's a great choice of pizza. Personally, I prefer <laughs> or something like this. You know? Right. I think um, I'm not sure that like the terms chatbot versus voice assistant themselves are so greatly distinct, but I do think in terms of like how people conceptualize this thing but i do think that there is a really big difference between people who are trying to build a system that kind of brings you back to certain points in the conversation so that you can take action on a back end um versus trying to generate an interaction with the user because these interactions they can drift like a like a human conversation um the topics can drift and um in a in a voice assistant situation you always need to get back to you know, what pizza is the person ordering? Where do they need to send to? Um, how much does it cost? Where they? How are they going to pay? And I don't know, like when do they? Pay? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, also, um, because well, that's your fault. You mentioned ChatGPT, so um, obviously okay. we're going to talk about it. Um, so um, let, let's say I've got a voice assistant. This win. What, what did we call it? Win three thousand, right? I've got this voice assistant. Um, can I empower it with something with, with like a large language model? Like it doesn't have to be ChatGPT, like just some LLM. Um, can I empower it? Can I connect those two things? Yeah, you could. There's a couple of different ways that you could do that. So if you want to use ChatGPT, one thing that you could do is you could get it to generate different responses, slightly different responses every time. Um, so for example, um, in a... I don't know, old school voice assistant, you would have a limited set of ways to ask what pizza would you like to order? In fact, what pizza would you like to order is probably like the number one top response uh, or like top, top question from the voice assistant. If you have chat GPT, you could ask it to generate a novel 
question every single time, and it would be able to come up with a lot of different variations. So that's one way that you could use something like uh, something like this to make a more lifelike um, mm -hmm. voice assistant. Another thing that you could do is you could use the underlying technology of the LLM as a as the system that powers your classification. So I was talking earlier about how every single time the user says something to an assistant, it needs to be classified into, you know, what kinds of, which of these functionalities am I trying to access? So you could um, adapt the, the underlying technology to say, okay, um, which of these categories? So I might be able to gather some extra data, fine tune the model and then say, okay, um, now choose from these five categories, which one is it? Um, you could... So another thing that I've seen, this is um, something that's being done according to blog posts by uh, Razor NLP. Um, what they have started developing, which I think is a really cool way to use this is... So remember earlier I was talking about how it's very difficult to decide between um, a user utterance that isn't part of the set of available functionalities versus a user utterance that is, but just is like an unusual way to say it maybe, and therefore has low confidence. So what they've apparently built is anytime there's low confidence, they ping it to ChatGPT and basically get ChatGPT to rephrase clarification questions until the user says something that can be classified by the oh cool that i think is a very cool uh way of using this because you're actually leveraging this ability to kind of generate more likely texts but this way you're getting chat gpt to uh to, to ask the human for more more data that then might be more easily classified by the existing nlp model so that I think is a really, um, really clever idea to like use chat, chat GPT as the, as the like entity prodding the human to say something differently. And one of the things that is really frustrating when you deal with voice assistance is like, every single time you hear, oh, sorry, I didn't get that. Or, oh, that's not a functionality we have here. Or any kind of thing that's a really frustrating experience, because also the types of things that you say that trigger that you're like, how come this system can't handle this? I didn't say anything particularly difficult. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, the challenge is also that um, having this interaction, there's a lot of different parts to it and every single one has to work flawlessly because we're humans and humans are the only uh, creatures on earth that have human language. So our expectation as a user is that the thing we're interacting yeah, interacting with also works like a human yeah it's a big reason why people are so blown away by chat gpt because it does feel remarkably human-like yeah okay that's super interesting every time i ask someone if chat gpt can be connected to it no matter what it is even like um i probably could ask a mechanic can chat gpt be connected to repair your car everyone is saying yes and that's that's kind of scary because it seems like can be used for everything. Like maybe not ChatGPT 
in, in sp- specific about like an NLM, um, it, it gets quite scary. Like um, maybe not scary, exciting, like a bit of both. Let's see where the future takes us a little bit. You know, are we going Terminator style or, you know, or, or are we going to like uh, a very bright future? It's very interesting, this stuff. Um, and Eric, before our podcast, I obviously did a little bit of homework about NLP and I tried to understanding. And I read an article. I said that NLP is more than just an LLM, right? So especially when it comes to the LLM hallucination, a proper NLP pipeline can be built to retrieve answers for documents. Uh, I think it was via uh, via semantic search. And we have issues with fact-checking, right? Now, as an NLP expert, does that concern you? Because large language models are being used, like I know for a fact they're being used heavily for different things like writing blogs, putting stories together. I think Build recently announced that they're, they're kicking out some editors, I think. What was it? Editors? Um, things like that. So what is your take on that? Yeah, I also read the Build thing. Um Okay, so so two things. Um, the first one is, I would argue that uh, fact-checking and uh, misinformation, that problem really predates generative AI, right? Okay. Um, because when you look back, um, a lot of misinformation is created by humans also, right? True. So the kind of stuff that gets shared a lot on social media platforms, uh, stuff that goes viral, um, a lot of it, uh, especially around controversial topics or where um, the actual truth of the matter is, is hard to name as a single truth because it is very complex. Um, that's an area where fact-checking becomes hard because absolute truth is difficult to attain. So an example of this is, for example, um, genetically modified organisms. You get a lot of, there's a lot of research on it. There's a lot of content available on the internet about it. Um, When you train an an LLM, you just scrape all of the internet. You scrape the research findings, you scrape all of the blog posts and the, um, you know, articles written by by someone, whether they're an expert or not an expert, whether they're an expert with this opinion or that opinion, a, a lay person with this opinion or that opinion, pro or con, whatever. The LLM, none of this is supervised. No one checked that the information that was used to train that model was true. And so that's why you get a situation where since it, it's, it's only doing its job and its job is simply tell me the next most likely word and then everything that we just had, take that and give me the next likely word after that and after that and after that. So this is how you end up with hallucinations because the training material probably contains a lot of variation. And the fact-checking part, going back to the built title um, example, well, okay, controversial controversial point. Like journalists all over the world 
of course, there's journalists, investigative journalists that are having to fact check very carefully everything that they say. There's also types of content that are about building engagement. Right. And there's types of journalism that are not journalism because no fact checking happens at all. I'm not going to make any comments about like what exactly is going on at Bootsitem, but I think that in terms of the space of content creation in general, this question of fact-checking is both what even is the truth and can we know it, especially on controversial complex topics, and right. do we do it in the first place, whether it's a human writer or an AI writer. Hmm. Hmm. That is um, I don't know that's if- a lot of food yeah. for thought. <laughs> That is a lot of food for thought. Uh, I'm going to think about that. I'll, I'll get back to you. Um, but I also want to talk a little bit, um, a little bit about the, the future of voice assistants. You know, connected maybe with a generative AI, maybe not. Um, but just looking more into the future, and also maybe for like a, new, a usefulness of a voice assistant. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? And obviously, we've got a lot of regulation, especially because we're in Germany, you know, everything is regulated, over-regulated. Yeah, but let's let just spitball. Can you imagine that one day my voice assistant, let's call it Win 3000, right? Because that's a product you and I are going to develop anyway. Yeah. Um, let, let, <laughs> let's say, can, can I connect it to my bank account? I think Alexa already can order stuff. Like, I'm not sure if it's limited to Amazon stuff or if it orders all over the internet. I'm not entirely sure. I haven't tried that yet. But Let's take it. Let's take it a, a step f- further, right? I want to use that. Like I connect this um, voice assistant to my bank account. I give them access and all that stuff. Can I start saying, "Look, man, I, I need socks, but I need them from Lara Clothing Limit Clothing Limited, or I need them from Vin Clothing Limited." Like, can I direct him to say to actually be like an, a real assistant? Mm. So, in my view, that's just a, the only limitation on that is this question of connecting it with the relevant, I'm just going to call it with the relevant service, right? So, yeah. for example, um, have you heard of ChatGPT plugins? Yeah, yeah. So, um, with specific um, companies, they've developed essentially a type of uh, like connection where um, within that product, people have like the team from say, I think booking.com actually has this. I tried it out a couple of weeks ago, um, has this ability to have chat GPT help you plan a trip. And I played around with this. And um, the thing is, it, I'll tell it something like, plan me a trip to Bangkok. I want to go in December. And it will actually pull up, you know, examples of hotels that are available in December in Bangkok. And then I can tell it things like, ooh, those are a little on the pricey side. Can you get me ones that are more suitable for a, I don't know, a student budget or something? Um, And it can do that. It can sort of interpret what student budget means and it can find things. Or I can say, I want a really plush experience. Get me some luxury. And it will be able to interpret what that means and then know to narrow it down to... Um, the booking.com backend of, you know, what categories of hotels do they have? They have them ranked by like number of stars. They probably have them sorted by like 
the how premium is the location, um, how high are the customer ratings, like all this kind of stuff. I'm sure they have like tons and tons and tons of different categories. But the, the fundamental question is mapping what ChatGPT is talking to you about with available categories in their back end. Because student budget or plush experience is not a category that's available in mm-hmm.com's back uh, back end, I'm pretty sure. Like if you have if, if any of your listeners work there and can tell me that there's plush experience as a tag for that, <laughs> please uh corrected, but probably not. Um and the, the question with the bank account is like again, it's about building that interface between uh like chat GPT talking to you and being being able to extract from you what functionality you want to access from what's available there. So that is mm-hmm. that I think uh that that's the crucial part of it. So fundamentally to answer your question, like yes, if you want to have a thing that uh orders socks from specific vendors, as long as the back end that you're accessing has categories such as the name of the vendor or the type of the product that they specialize in, or maybe you say, I need them by tomorrow, and they'll look for uh, places that have distribution centers like very close to your house, something like this. It's all about how can we map what you're asking for onto the available backend. And this question of, um, well, you have to design everything to to be like that, right? You're not going to start talking to your bank account the plugin app and say, okay, now order me the socks. But this idea mm. of a universal assistant, I think fundamentally is possible. Um, it's just the part of mapping it onto the back end that is genuinely a challenge and okay. um, would still need to be carefully defined by engineering. Okay, so so we're, we're not there yet uh, to have like a fully digital assistant you know because i was thinking i that'd be so cool like you just speak to your phone it's like oh you know i ran out of just gonna, like washing up liquid whatever like you know things like that and yeah that would be sick right or like put something in my calendar um order me this uh, book a restaurant there call the hairdresser for me you know because obviously you can train voices and stuff now call the hairdresser for me please make an appointment check my calendar, cross-reference my calendar, right? And tell him when I can do it. Please just take times from, I don't know, 6 p.m. onwards because that's until I, the time I work. I was just thinking that the, the future there could be very, very bright and, and make life so much easier. Um, could, yeah, but okay, it's a challenge. Fair it's, enough. It's a challenge. I think um, it, it's, a, it's a crackable one. Um, I also want to point out there's obviously like, uh ethical guardrails that need to be put into place right because mm-hmm. um should it be possible for someone to tell their you know vin 3000 voice assistant um something like my neighbor really annoyed me last night i wish i could take out a hit on them and then like next week suddenly your neighbor is like in the middle of the hinterhof uh with a knife through their back and you're like <laughs> Like, so is that then your responsibility? Right. Um, but also, like, it also means that in designing the voice assistant that can do this, you have to put a lot of thought into what should be prevented. 
And I mean, right. there's been a lot of sci-fi films about this already. Like, where does the responsibility begin and end and um, in, in terms of when you automate stuff? Um, because look, um, first of all, not everyone tries to do things as benign as just order laundry detergent and order a pizza <laughs> um, because the world is a cruel, cruel place. Um, but secondly, there's also so much potential for misunderstanding. So when you look yeah. at um, irony and sarcasm, for example, those are classically extremely difficult for NLP systems to um, differentiate from, from you know, straight meaning. And actually, I'm just thinking of this now. I haven't actually played around with something as sophisticated as ChatGPT yet to see if that's really something that it can differentiate. But the fact of the matter there is also like sometimes for humans, it's not so easy to differentiate, right? Like that's the basis of a lot of humor. Um, that that moment of uncertainty of did the person mean literally that or not literally that? Was I supposed yes. to face value or not? And so that type of thing is... Is something that you have to be extra, extra careful for uh, to, to watch out for in your design. Right. Well, Uncle Ben would say, "With great power comes great responsibility." I think in this this point, he's very right. Um, okay, that is, um, yeah, that is something to be considered. Especially your example just now with the sarcasm. Right. You're absolutely right. Like even humans sometimes struggle understanding sarcasm. Like it depends how it's being delivered, like the tone of voice. Some people are more blunt. That, that, these are some very interesting, like actually I'm saying it's interesting and I find it interesting, but also I think there's a bit of concern in my head right now um, yeah. because that is concerning, right? Because who decides what's ethical at the end of the day? Like who builds those guardrails? And then once those are built, what, what, what if it doesn't encompass the whole scope of what it should encompass? Who is liable then? Are you then liable as the user? Is, is the person that set out that, that law or those ethical gui guidelines, is that person responsible? Like, can you even think about everything? Because like, I guess there's like a billion options. Like, yeah, that's, um, that's a bit scary and boring. Yeah. So Vin, I think you should do a podcast of, on, on ethics in AI if you haven't already. Uh, no, I haven't. And that's a fantastic idea. And I, I'm, I'm definitely going to do that because that is super interesting right now. Um, it's a big topic. Um, so number one, it's a big topic and a fascinating one. Number two, I am the wrong person to talk to about this. And number three, <laughs> that's actually for a systemic reason, which I also think is worrying, right? Which is that the people on the one hand building the big AI systems right now and on the other hand, the people using the big AI systems today, um, those tend to be people that are not trained in ethics. A software engineer is like, whoa, how do I make this cool thing do cool stuff? Yeah. Um, somewhere like a product manager, you know, we're going to think about things like, um, you know, what problems can I solve with this? but not so much what problems do I risk creating with this? And that's where we need the ethicists to come in. And part of the issue is also, I mean, there's so much conversation about um, biased data, right? Which, like, that's a real problem. The people building mm -hmm. systems these days typically don't have training in how to collect data, for example, and how to make sure that it's a balanced data set or 
how the way that you collect the data might influence or create bias within it. Here is an example from a couple of years ago. Um, and, and there's tons of examples like this. Uh, Twitter was rolling out a feature where I believe the idea was, um, you know, when you post a photo and then um, the whole photo is like large, but for a thumbnail, they want to focus on just a tiny part of it. Um, you can either have a human select like what part do they want focused in the thumbnail, or you can just like select always the top left square, whether that's actually focusing on something interesting in the picture or not. Or, and this is what Twitter was doing, you can design an AI that um, finds a face and makes the, the thumbnail, like centers the thumbnail on that face. In theory, fantastic idea, super easy, because a lot of people obviously post people like photos of people. And mm -hmm. if you say, ah, there's a person in this, let's suggest this thumbnail and post it. Great. Except not, because what happened was the um, the data set that they used for training on faces was clearly extremely biased. What happened? Um, I forget who it was, but someone posted a photo that had, uh, and I'm really dating like this occurrence now because the photo was of then President Barack Obama in the foreground, like, I don't know, speaking at a podium, for example, I'm not sure. Um, and in the background, very small and blurred, was the face of Mitch McConnell, the then um, Speaker of the House. Well, like House, yeah, oh gosh, American political terms, I'm really not sure about this one, but Mitch McConnell. And Again, Barack Obama is big, in focus, and in the foreground of the picture. Mitch McConnell is small, blurry, and very much in the background of the photo. What happened? You guess. Who got focused in the, in the, in the thumbnail? Mitch. It was Mitch, because the AI had been fed too many, like not a balanced data set or not a representative data yeah. of people with different t skin tones. And so it was like, oh, the white person is the only person I can see in this. And yeah. <laughs> that is obviously a very large problem. And also yeah. there is a second also large problem is this product passed all of the internal review processes and was released without anyone noticing this. Like those are two separate, but obviously systemically related problems. So yes, do a data and ethics AI podcast, please. I will listen. Topic, topic has been added to the list. Absolutely. Now, um, final question from my end. Um, where do you actually see this whole uh, voice assistant uh, going in the future? I think, uh, was it, I think it was Amazon. Uh, they let a lot of the stuff go for for that specific yeah. team. I think I think it was Amazon. Uh, well, one of the big ones uh, for their for the NLP uh, so voice assistant teams. They let them go. But you also said that it's a challenge you can solve that to connect your voice assistant to everything in your life. Which again, you obviously there's ethical stuff. But let's say we can solve it. There's obviously a bright future. But in general, what do you think is going to happen with voice assistants? That's something that's gonna 
Like if I have a thousand euros left in my pocket, am I going to invest in that stuff? Am I going to try to get rich? Or do you think, ah, you know, it's going to be there, but it's never going to be that big thing. Yeah. So, so here's my thinking. So yeah, at the end of last year, roughly there was, um, there was a ton of layoffs from a lot of these big name, um, tech companies. Um, the issue with voice assistance is that for consumer products, they are kind of difficult to make money off of. Um, the reason being that the use case or, or like the, 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 the usefulness of them is kind of limited. Um, or like limited is, is not a good word, but like there's specific uh, situations when they're extremely useful and the rest of the time it actually is quicker to tap on the screen. Or um, okay. say if you're in a car, like there's no, it's no coincidence that voice assistance technology was developed in Silicon Valley where people routinely spend 90 minutes uh, driving to the office every day, each way, each way. So if you can somehow utilize that time when your hands are on the steering wheel and you're looking at the at a busy highway, for example, by dictating an email or having the assistant read out meeting notes from yesterday or making a to-do list for the day, stuff like this, that becomes very useful. But this is a case where already I've highlighted the reason that you're not using your hands or your eyes to do this is because literally you can't because you will die because you've crashed it because you're driving. Um, the other types of uh, use cases that are really interesting and useful are things like um, when your hands are full um, or you're under time pressure, right? So typing is a long, laborious process. Um, things have in common that point of the reason you're, you're not using your hands or your eyes is because they're busy, because there's a safety concern, for example. But in your own home, where you have all the time in the world, if you're going to ask Alexa to order you a product, how much do you trust that system to order you the thing that you actually want versus the yeah. thing that it wants to sell you? So that's also built into this uh, this conundrum, the question of trust. Like, do I trust this resource? And I think, to be honest, with uh, with Alexa, so I personally don't have any smart speakers at home, um, but I do notice with Amazon, the product search is terrible. And I'm pretty sure with a company, like a company with that amount of resources and smart people working on this kind of stuff, they could easily make the search function better. But I think that if it continues to be most convenient to see the ranking by relevance or ranking by popularity, that's much more in Amazon's interest, right? Mm -hmm. You just brought up a massive point and I just, I need to rethink about my wish to have like a, a voice assistant, like a, because you're absolutely right. Yeah, I was just thinking about it. Like, if I'm very specific, it's like, hey, reorder the socks. I think that that probably would work very well. Mm. But you're right. If I say like I need white t-shirts in size L, like every brand is slightly different. 
you know, there's a different kind. Okay, that's very interesting. Well, Lara, at this point, I wanted to thank you very much for sharing your expertise and it was very enjoyable, actually. Um, it was a lot of fun and thank you very much also for uh, for blowing my mind a little bit with this whole, with, with your, with the with your uh, career <laughs> progression, right? To be fair, I'm, I'm very much into that stuff. Uh, I really liked it. So it was quite cool to, to see how that language actually developed. So thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much, Vincenzo. Um, it's always a real joy to speak to you. And I can tell from this conversation that, you know, we could be here for hours still. Yes. Um, good luck turning that into a, you know, nice, condensed, tight podcast. But yeah, it's been really, really fun to talk. Um, I'm glad that the, the Vikings and the LLMs blow your mind. And um, yeah, I hope it's fun for people to listen to. I'm pretty sure. And for everyone listening, stay tuned for our next episode.